0: 106.5 FM
1: Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050
0: AM Palm
1: Springs. You are
2: back in the house of mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren, co-host today, Mr. Michael Hawley. Hello, Al. Hey, great. hey, you know, it, so, so it's been really hot. I've been trying to, I, now there was a study that came out that said that you're supposed to start, uh, breathing through your nose when you sleep at night.
1: Oh and, really?
2: And you'll sleep better. So this is so I'm thinking, well that's that's a kind of a good idea. Maybe it works. But so anyways, I so uh of course I was on TikTok, you know. I'm a big TikTok guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well my wife my wife always knows it because I snore a lot. I get bruises a lot when I wake up. It's because of my snoring. So um that's why I know I snore, because my arm's always hurting when I wake up.
2: <laughs> well, well, see, this will work for you, too. So uh, on TikTok, there's the trend of saying that you're supposed to tape your mouth closed huh. when you go to bed.
1: Mouth closed?
2: Yeah. So then you'll breathe out of your nose.
1: Well, that stop me from grinding my teeth, too.
2: No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm scared to try it. I'll end up dead. Uh, it won't turn out well. You know, <laughs> things never work. Anyway,
1: right. You know.
2: <laughs> well, so here we go. So um, now today we are talking about Long Shadows. It's the novel. And our guest is the author, Abigail Cutter. So thank you for coming on the show, Abigail.
3: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here and uh, have you um, be interested in my book.
2: Nice meeting you, Abby. Thank you. It's kind of a really interesting concept. I like the whole idea behind this. Um, and um, before we get too much into it, I, I what what's your experience in writing? Like, what what made you decide that um, it was time that uh, Abby wrote a book?
3: Well, I started with a stupid assumption. <laughs> I had never written a book before. I had written for the U.S. government in my job, which is a totally different undertaking and I somehow thought because I speak English I read a lot of novels that somehow I could write a book I was trained as an artist and went to museums a lot but I would never think that because I went to museums that I could be a painter so it took me a long time with um, taking a lot of classes uh, having some extremely good editors to get to the point where I felt satisfied with what I'd written took 10 years actually
2: yeah but you know it can do that you know it's just I I find it fascinating um, when someone makes that decision and and kind of goes. But but was there some sort of uh, an event or some sort of um, occurrence that sort of pushed you you into it or kind of lit the fire for you?
3: Well, several things happened. One was that um, my husband inherited his family's 19th century house in the Valley of Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley. Um, up against the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it had been deserted for 20 years. And when we inherited it, it was really in terrible shape. There was black snakes into the cushions in the uh, on the couch, in the uh, parlor. The wallpaper had fallen in long ribbons across the floor. The wall's plaster was cracking. The kitchen cabinets had fallen on the floor. But every single thing anybody had brought to the house uh, since 1854 was still there. And we started to fix it up. And the first night we spent the night in the house, we discovered not only had they left everything they owned, but there was also a very active ghost in the house. And so and this was a ghost that seemed to wear whenever we made any change to the house, um, exhibiting really angry behavior, stomping up and down stairs, slamming doors, watching things while uh, while I mean, moving things while we watched. Um, Did that
1: freak you out the first time you heard that?
3: Well, it was a strange sort of phenomena. I mean, it things. So the first night we spent in the house, I heard heavy boots stomping across the floor below. And, you know, I elbowed my husband to wake up and of course he heard nothing. And it, <laughs> it was one of those things where it sort of seemed like a movie, you know, the next day I thought, wait a minute, how did that happen? And that again and again, and they weren't necessarily things that happened at night. The house is a cheerful, sunny, house with large windows that look out on you know wonderful rolling uh, landscape in Virginia and um, so it wasn't a scary place in the daytime although a lot of these things happen in the daytime Um, but I quickly decided I wasn't going to spend the night in the house by myself Um, and and we were doing a lot of the work ourselves so you know if I if I painted in the front of the house, painted bedrooms, The in the back bedroom where my daughter was sleeping, the door next to her head, you know, next to the headboard, would slam over and over and over again without the door moving. And that seemed pretty characteristic of things that have happened in the house. You hear a noise of something physical happening, like a window going up and down, but it doesn't move. It's just the sound. Um, oh, I so went- it's
1: was not moving. It's just the sound.
3: Yeah, it's just the sound. Nothing moves. So many people have heard the doors slamming, but you never ever see a door move. And and I don't have much patience for people who talk about being freaked out in an old house because they feel creepy. Right, things actually happened in it. Yeah. Right. Didn't feel creepy. Um, you know, it would, it would feel warm and comfortable, like the kind of house you wished your grandmother had had and you could have visited her in. Um, and that was what was so frustrating about it. It's a house I really loved. Um, but one, I finally, because my husband was traveling a lot for his job. And one night I, uh, we had a large St. Bernard dog. One night I drank four beers so I wouldn't wake up and. This <laughs> the dog and I um, were going to sleep in the house I turned off. It's a fairly large house. I I turned off every light in, I mean, I'm sorry, left every light on in every room. So that meant pushing the buttons, flipping the switches, pulling the chains as I went up to bed. And when I woke up at five in the morning, all of those lights were off. So the dog and I went down to the kitchen. And I looked in the circuit breaker box, and the circuit breaker box was fine. And going back through the house, I had to push the buttons, flip the switches, and pull the chains to turn the lights back on. But it didn't frighten me then. It was only the next day when I thought, wait a minute, how did all those lights get off? Somebody or something had turned them all off. Had so that physically do that. Yeah, that was the last time I spent the night in the house. So I began to really, because I do love the place. Want to find out what it was that kept this disturbed soul there and um bowman's my husband's great grandfather had been a soldier in the confederate army
1: Tom Smiley is he is that-
3: yeah yeah the the central character in the book because the book is narrated by this ghost and um and he lived to be a very old man, but there are family letters where it's quite clear that he suffered. Afterwards, um, that he suffered from what they call battle fatigue, we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. And I, I really wanted to get at the root of that. I thought that might be the cause. And, and the other reason was that we initially lived in northern Virginia and used the house for weekends and for weeks during the summer. And it was a place of real peace and solace for us. I mean, aside from these ghostly encounters. Um, But it was and I it was about the time that Russia first invaded Crimea. And I thought about how would it feel in this country to live in landscape that gave you real joy and peace and suddenly have it be the scene of battles that were so violent, as as some of these letters describe that you could hear gunshots as frequently as you've heard beats of your heart. And, um, you know, Virginia was. As I said, was uh, 30 percent of the war was fought in Virginia and um, and people fought in numbers that we don't now see in wars. You know, there would be one hundred and sixty thousand people on a field or on the road right in front of our farmhouse. There might be five thousand soldiers that would march by or get involved in what would be considered a small skirmish. And bodies would be left on the side of the road and buried, you know, hastily buried under piles of leaves and in shallow graves. Um, and and my husband's great grandfather was a foot soldier and they had the lowliest of jobs during the war. Never knew where they were going. Rarely ever saw anybody of a rank above their sergeant and ended up having to bury the bodies, You tear up the fence post. So there'd be a big, ba- a big uh, area for a battle. Um, just just the lowliest of jobs. And so I wondered what it would feel like to live in that time as a soldier and fighting for a cause you did not believe in. And that for me was the central point, is that so many people, even though they might have been racist, could not possibly have been willing to give up their lives to preserve slavery. Um, and and so that led me to, be, to a lot of research. I mean, I had not ever known, for instance, that the Confederacy put in place a draft very early in the war. And that if you decided to go AWOL, you would be shot and killed. Um, so it was interesting to me as a southerner to think about the fact that there may have been many, many people on those battlefields, young men, who didn't want to be there. Uh, but were forced to. And and forced to because of the um, greedy desires of those people in power who owned slaves and who were threatened uh, by the fact they might lose their, the value of their, quote unquote, property. So those were my motivations for writing.
1: So um, a question, you must have had to do a ton of research uh, involving the Civil War, is that correct?
3: I did. Yeah, I started doing the research. I wasn't certain where the story was going to go. I just knew that at the end Tom smiling my central character and the ghost narrator had to find peace. Um and I was lucky at one point I worked at the National Endowment for the Humanities which funds uh research historical research as well as museum exhibitions that have to do with history, use objects, material culture to look at history, art history, anthropology. And um, there was a scholar from the University of Virginia who had created a, a large database of letters and diaries, newspapers from 1855 to 1870, using the county where our farm was as his focus. And so yeah. my main character really grew out of a composite of all these young men who wrote about the experiences they were having um, it, it, during the war. But also I found that they weren't they weren't very analytical. They weren't very descriptive. They were sort of, you know, so and so got shot in the head when you come to visit you, because families could could go up the valley and take things to the, their uh, boys. Um, so, you know, so-and-so got shot in the head, please bring my heavy uh, overcoat when you come and bring a smoked hand. It was only later when people had a little distance from their experiences that they could really think about what it was about. So I also read a lot of memoirs by veterans, um, which are really much richer sources of information than those initial letters and diaries. Um, and there's a wonderful book um, that grew out of that database called In the Presence of My Enemies by Edward Ayers, who was head of the History Department at UVA and really a very well-known historian in Virginia who writes about the Civil War, Um, that's as good as reading any novel. And then Drew Gilpin Faust wrote a book um, in This Republic of Suffering, which really talked about, and the subtitle was Death in the American Civil War, really talked about um, the impact that all of that death had all at once had on American uh, life and culture, so those were two primary pieces of, of uh, research uh, material. But I, I have a stack six feet high of books about the Civil War <laughs> next to my desk.
1: Well, the way uh, I say, the way I ask that is because. Uh... Uh, I would said this to Al before, but with my fiction novels, his, historical fiction, especially like when you're at this, they say uh, even though it's fiction, uh, for historical fiction, you better have your facts right or you're going to be having some people upset.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm uh, the only inconsistency, the only uh, thing that I really took out of context was the, Gat- the Gatling gun, which was the first semi-automatic rifle used during the Civil War. And okay. I have it. I have it used a year before it was actually used. It was first used in Petersburg, Virginia, in the Battle of Petersburg. So but I I say that at the end of the book.
1: Well at least you <laughs> I, say it.
3: Yeah, I acknowledge that I made something up. <laughs> the wonderful thing about writing historical fiction is that, you know, truth as I think Mark Twain said, truth is much stranger than fiction, but fiction allows you to fill in the gaps. Yeah, your imagination. And then it becomes a much richer experience for the reader. I mean, one thing about the Civil War, it's so long ago and it, it it's been reduced often to the generals who fought the strategy, who won the battles. And I wasn't really interested in that. I was interested in what it felt like. And so that's what I hope the reader finds when they read the book is is how it felt to be there. And and my main character pretty quickly he's a very impulsive eighteen year old when he signs up the first months of the war, but he pretty quickly comes to hate the cause for which he's having to fight, Um, and and you know at at some point it became necessity because to win the war the the North had to invade the South and so people's homes, farms, uh, lives were. At risk and so from this confederate perspective it became a war to defend your homeland but uh, but at the core of it was this terrible evil and uh, so i think i think a lot of young boys pretty quickly decided they didn't want to be there and didn't what, want to be back.
1: what's also nice about that is even today uh, there are, the civil war is part of our the politics of today but also in inaccurate um, ideas of what happened in the past. It sounds like this is going to be something very valuable, even for today, in that respect.
3: Well, I think it does have a lot of relevance to what's happening today. Um, in Ed Ayer's book, In the Presence of My Enemies," he talks a lot about how, how divided, even in small communities, people were. I mean, our farm is in a tiny town of about 10 houses, and um, at that time, um, there was really little interest in that town and seceding. I mean, and that was true of southwestern Virginia, where the novel is set. Is people were proud of the fact that uh, Virginia had uh, provided people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and, and the early thinkers in terms of um, freedom from Great Britain and. Um, had relatives just because Virginia's a border state, which made a big difference is they had lots of relatives just over the Pennsylvania line, just in right. Maryland. And so um, they really they and and our part of Virginia, southwestern part of Virginia raised the farmers raised different crops. They weren't labor intensive. So, yes, people had slaves, but they weren't like the huge plantations in the deep south where cotton and, and rice were raised. It was really rye and wheat and um, not tobacco, uh, not cotton. And so people, some wealthy families might have 20 slaves, which is still terrible, but there weren't thousands of slaves. Um, and so they really, and, and the people in this part of Virginia were Scotch-Irish, it had come down from Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and were accustomed; they were hardworking people who were accustomed to doing their work themselves, and were disdainful of people in the tidewater part of Virginia, which is over by the coast, which was settled by people from Great Britain, um, and had very had larger plantations. Tobacco and cotton were raised there, so there was a real schism just between one side of Virginia, the south, the southeastern part of Virginia, and the southwestern part of Virginia. So it took a long time. Um, for the southwestern part of Virginia to finally vote for secession. Um, so, th- so there was a split there, but then there was, there, you know, there were just splits within, na- you know, with neighbors fighting with neighbors about, um, whether there was any, any, anything good about secession or going to war. So it, in many ways, like the divisions we see today, where within same families, same towns, uh, people have stopped speaking to each other. Um, or aren't able to talk about a lot of topics together. Oh, uh, that's for sure. Yeah. I also thought the other thing that interested me was, you know, no one that, I mean, none of us live, have lived through a war on our own soil. Our grandparents didn't live through a war on their own soil. And so I was interested in what that would have been like and how horrible it would have been.
0: Right. And, and in
3: some ways it's a, uh, you know, it's a warning now uh, to find some way to you know reconcile our differences. Also, the title of the book has double meaning. Uh, you know, long long shadows is taken from a quote by W. E. Du Bois, and it refers, of course, to the effect of slavery, which you know we still feel today. As well, it's a it was a it, you know my own personal haunting, but also the haunting of a nation by this. You know long history that we have um that that's still having great effect
2: right did you did you feel a little bit of um angst <laughs> or a little bit of um stress over writing in such a you know let's say a particularly um controversial sort of subject these days
3: well, I mean you know it's set in the past so people can draw their own conclusions (laughs) right 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 yeah um so i i found i ended up i read a lot of um black history that i had not known although it doesn't feature i'm speaking through you know a white voice in this book but i found incidents there was one in gettysburg when lee Um, took his soldiers into Gettysburg, not knowing, of course, there was going to be a battle of Gettysburg that lives in our memory forever. But but at that point in the war, there had been a lot of burning and destruction in the South by Northern soldiers. And so he gave the order that none of his soldiers were to burn towns or uh, cause harm to the citizens. And at the same time, the newspapers in Richmond and the South were crying for revenge to make the North suffer as much as they felt the South had. And because it was so different in terms of communication, um, you know, that Lee's order didn't make it very far down the ranks. And so a few days before the Battle of Gettysburg actually occurred, many freed Blacks and former slaves were rounded up by Confederate soldiers and driven across the line to be sold, to be auctioned. You know, there were things I just hadn't known that had slipped through the cracks of time uh, that were shocking. And I use that incident in the book to reinforce how uh, sort of embittered and, and grieving my main character is about having to fight to defend that kind of action so there's right. just there's just so much that so long after an event has been forgotten and um, and people did people did bad things on both sides, just as happens in wars today um, for whatever personal reason or whatever whatever kind of individual they were um, so it was it was uh, painful to read all of that, but i I didn't feel any trepidation or angst about addressing the topic.
2: Hmm. I wonder if um, it was something like this, how it's changed you, like how, how much, because it sounds like you've learned a lot. Like you were, you seems like there was a lot of things that you didn't realize and uh, from, from the war times and stuff. So do, do you think it's made a, a big change in yourself?
3: Well, I was born in Richmond Um And all the men in my family uh, read books about the Civil War. That was their favorite topic. And so I hated anything about the Civil War. (laughs) And I wouldn't read anything about it. I mean, I grew up in a time when Robert E. Lee was idolized. And, uh, you know, and Stonewall Jackson was a hero. And I just was not interested in any of that. It just seemed a perpetuation of something that was not You know, that sort of romanticization of that era seemed not a good thing at all. Um, But but then when I moved into this, you know, we started we had this house that was just full of books and and objects that came from that era. And I and I thought about all the lives that had lived in that house and what they'd experienced. Then I became interested in it, but not from the standpoint of glorifying the Confederate cause in any way much more, um, I was interested in taking a realistic view of it based on a lot of history that I read. So, um, it, it, it gave me much more sympathy for the ordinary soldier, uh, and what they experienced. Um, and, and yes, I learned a great deal, um, that I had never sort of allowed myself to learn, but it was coming in sideways, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't about the generals and the battles and the strategy. It was much more about uh, what it felt as an ordinary soldier to be there and the scars that it might leave. And I, I haven't mentioned it, but my character Tom Smiley was a a Union prisoner in Fort Delaware um, for the last year of the war, and being a and and I think people have not written much, certainly not novelists, about what it was like to be a prisoner in either the Northern or Southern prisons we've all know about Andersonville and how horrible that was but um, but the northern prisons were pretty awful places to be too. I mean, an interesting thing happened was that once the um, northern army, the Union army formed the the color troops, um, of which there i think there were about a hundred thousand or more uh, when they I have to explain about the prisons. I'm going to digress to explain about the prison system. Initially, the South didn't have big prisons, and so when they captured soldiers, they would send them home, making them promise they wouldn't come back. And of course, they would come back. So then they developed a system where they did trade. So they might hold soldiers for three months, and then trade with. So if it's the Confederacy, they would trade then with. Um, the North, so if you had a sergeant, you'd trade a sergeant. You had five privates, you'd trade five privates. But once the colored troops began to fight, the Confederacy would not trade a white, a, a black soldier back for one of their white soldiers because they, you know, they said black soldiers were property. They weren't humans. And so they wouldn't debase their own soldiers in a trade by equating a black soldier with a white soldier. Um, and so what happened was Lincoln said, OK, if you won't do these trades and treat treat black soldiers as equals, as human beings, then we will do no trades. And that's how you got places like Andersonville or places like Fort Delaware, where a facility that was built, a fort that was built to hold 1,000 or 2,000 soldiers certainly, suddenly had 10,000. And then people began to die of disease and malnutrition And you had all these soldiers who came with terrible war wounds, who got no treatment for it. So they were terrible places to be. And that's where Tom was the last year of the war. And I have my character really scarred by something that he does out of good intention, but causes the death of someone close to him. Um, so So in answer to your larger question about did I learn things? I knew nothing about the prison systems during the war, or why they were such terrible places. Uh, so that was all very interesting and and this this incident that is in the book that Tom feels so guilty for, aside from the fact that he was fighting for such a horrible cause, um, is is real, and I uncovered in the transcripts of the um, of the incident a very different version than what has become part of the history of fort delaware so that was interesting
2: well you know uh, what was what was your own experiences before when it comes to ghosts and and things like that did you sort of have a belief in that
3: (laughs) yes i do um (laughs) uh i do have and and in and that in, in the case of our house ghost, my husband has never heard it. I don't see things. I hear things. But my husband has never heard anything. On the other hand, many house guests have. Um, yes, so in my own family, uh, I lost my sister to an automobile accident when I was 25 and she was 18. And for a year after that, uh, my mother and I heard things in the house that were very characteristic of her uh, when my Father died um, the my senior year of high school. Um, at the night I graduated from high school, my mother heard his footsteps. She, in the in the morning he would go out and we lived in the city of Richmond at that time. He would go out and garden in a small flower bed, and he would wear these shoes that made a scuffing sound when he came up the steps. My mother heard his footsteps coming up the steps towards my room. Um, so. I I don't think it takes a terrible event in a house for there to be a ghost. I think that um, it can be just somebody who can't let go for whatever reason. And that doesn't have to be an old house. It can be a fairly recently built house. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think I think it probably I, I have my character, Phoebe, who's a contemporary woman in the book, find a way to communicate with Tom Smiley. And she ultimately becomes his confessor. He's in he's in his house because it reminds him of of himself as a father, as a good community member, um, as somebody uh, whose life he was proud of. And as Phoebe and her husband, a contemporary couple who come to the house, begin to take the furnishings out because Phoebe doesn't like the old brown furniture. Um, it it starts to peel away this sort of fortress, that psychological fortress that Tom has built um, so that the terrible memories begin to arise. And so he tries very hard to frighten this young couple out of his house. I mean, he, he doesn't understand why they're there to start with. Um, and uh, and so the woman has to make a choice. Phoebe has to make a choice. Is she going to... Uh, give up the house, which her husband is reluctant to do, and nobody else hears the ghost. So uh oh, know, that believe. was my
1: question is if yeah. his husband uh, had hears the
3: hears the ghost. Oh no, no. So he's not willing to give up this place that is his ancestral home. And or she has to find a way to deal with the ghost. So she um teaches herself to ultimately be able to communicate with Tom. And then he ultimately he's at the to the breaking point at, by then, he then begins to unburden himself in terms of all of these memories he's kept suppressed for these 150 some years. So she becomes his confessor. And I I did spend some time talking to um, therapists who work with people with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, and read a fair amount about uh, one technique, which is to allow people, to encourage people to talk about these memories that they've suppressed. So I've had Phoebe be that person for Tom in my novel. And it's in the, in the sort of unearthing, allowing all of this suppressed painful memory to come forward that he ultimately can find peace.
2: Uh, how do you um, see your, your characters and how do you experience them? I said that, uh, do you hear, do you hear their voice? Do you, do you see a, like a film sort of picture and what, how does this work for you?
3: Well, uh, in terms of my writing process, I did all that research without any idea where it was going to go. I didn't outline, and then I'm I'm a longtime meditator, so I so I sort of know how to find the zone, and I would put myself into that state, and then just let my unconscious go, and the characters would go wherever they wanted to go, which would often surprise me. And then I would go back and revise and revise and revise and revise. But um, I allow the characters to um, go in whatever direction they seem to need to go. And uh, there are several other characters in the book who are important. One is Tom's sister, Mary, who is a spunky, quirky, ingenious young woman. She's 16. She's a number of years younger than he is, um, who writes letters to him from home. And then the last year of the war, when he's in prison, keeps a diary about how terrible things are at home. Um, and And so I had I had letters from both Mary and Tom to begin with, so I could see what kind of personality she was. But I used the same process. I just um, allowed the character to speak, and then I would go back and and revise until it it made a good story um, and then the, another character in the book is a seer, um, Mr. Tatternook, and nobody knows where he's com- where he comes from. Um, And he's somebody who's a healer and is in tune with nature and is able to talk to Tom initially about how remorse, unless he comes to grips with what is happening in his life, is going to haunt him forever. Um, And then he appears later in the book. But those, they all sort of emerged from my unconscious and then took their own direction.
2: Wow. So, do you hear voices when you're driving? Or <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think all the time about what I'm writing when I'm driving. <laughs> and then I call myself and my voice. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, you know, just a, you're not waking up in the middle of the night with a shovel in your hand or anything. <laughs>
3: no, no, no. no, no. I, I don't hear things. I see things. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't. I, I had that backwards. I, I hear things. I don't see things. Yeah. Although I have, I have seen things uh, move. Yeah. But uh, I don't see ghosts.
2: Is, is your husband still alive, really? Or is this? Is yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Doing, <laughs> he's okay. Like he's not in the basement somewhere. Or anything, you know?
3: No, I, he's very tolerant of my telling stories. I gonna... And actually, actually, he was a good reader. I, you know, I'm female and never been a soldier. Um, so I needed a, a male to tell me where I had the voice wrong. So he read my book, my manuscript, nine times. Uh, he wasn't wow. involved in the, Editing in any way, but he was a useful. um, It's uh,
2: worth keeping alive for now.
3: Yeah, yeah. For bouncing ideas off of. So I I would give it to him to read and then he'd say, well, I don't understand why this and this is happening. And then I would explain it to him and then realize I needed to include that in the book. Hmm. Um, and, And he also would tell me if I didn't have the voice right, that no man, he would say no man would ever say anything like that. (laughs)
1: Well, that's very valuable because, again, in my fiction novels, I used my wife. And uh, for me, I'm really into a science-detailed forensic stuff, which I think there are a huge audience for that. But my wife could give a crap. All she's about is the relationships relationships so then i would have to do that and it just grind me but she was correct
3: <laughs> so. right, right well the other sort of thing the other kind of information i got from my husband and i've i've now working on a second novel and i'm at the point of having it edited but it's the same thing i got my husband and my grown son to read it great um, and and both don't hold back in terms of <laughs> criticisms oh, yeah. so it's yeah very useful it's a good way to write yeah
2: <laughs> did you um did you sort of have this in your mind when you were putting together all this like this the storyline and the people and all that and or do you do you outline when you put this kind of book together for yourself or did it just kind of go as it came as it went you know sort of thing
3: you had a larger idea i mean for me writing is like um having a skein of yarn and so you have the 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 larger Uh, strands of yarn but then you take each one and you pull it apart and pull it apart and pull it apart so I that's why it was a process of going back again and again and again as I would I would get the larger ideas down on paper and then I would go back and work on details and pull details out develop the character more and, and you know I I would think about it I used to be an artist a visual artist and you know, you have paints and canvases and paper and stuff you have to haul around. You can only do it in certain places where you can make a big mess or where the light is right. And this, I thought about it all the time while I drove my car because I was in, think about it a lot in the shower while I was cooking. Um, and then would have to quickly run and write things down because I'd forget them or call myself on my cell phone and leave notes. Um, so it was a, it was not so much an outline as, working at it, like gnawing at it, pulling at it, until I had enough of it sort of spun out that I thought I had a story. I, I'm a pant, what people call a pantser, meaning I write by the seat of my pants rather than, <laughs> <laughs> than a specific outline, but it ultimately all makes sense once it's all together and, and finally revised hmm. and closed.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, it's interesting. It's interesting to see. Do, do things outside of you um in your life um sort of influence your writing to or do you find like like can you just sit down and go, okay, well today I'm gonna write, you know, between eleven and three. I've got nobody home, whatever, and just sit down and do it? Or do you have to be in a particular mood?
3: No, actually you know, I just initially when I started this, I didn't know where it was going to go ten years ago. And so I wrote a couple of chapters and I would only work on it every now and then. But then I um I sent my husband away for, I, I, or we have, we have in Waterford, which is a little old town we also live in, we have a little guest house. And so I moved to the little guest house. And my husband at the time was working in New York and came home on the weekends. And I took the dog to doggy daycare every day. <laughs> and so I, I would get up every morning at 5 and work till 11 at night. I didn't let anybody, you know, any of my neighbors know I was there. So I'd be undisturbed. So I really got the juices flowing in a month. And then uh, at the time we were living in New York, so we went back to New. I went back to New York, but I would, you know, get in bed and start thinking about it, and get up at, you know, ten thirty, eleven, and write until three or four in the morning, and not know the time had passed. It was like flying. I liked it, you know. I was trained as a painter and a, uh, an artist. I liked this so much better, um, and I, I wish I had learned to paint and draw with that same kind of freedom. I think. One of the things was I did not think of myself as a writer. So I had no hesitation about somehow damaging my self-image. I could just go at it. And then, you know, afterwards really work for years to make it better. And then, you know, I had editors in the early days and they would tell me, you know, this and that needs changing and I wouldn't know why. And so then I started taking a lot of classes uh, and, I, and I read books by writers that I admired five, six, seven times with a pen in hand and underlined passages that I thought I, that worked. Um, Anthony Doerr was one of my favorites. All like cannot see and read all of his books. Um, but uh, so it it uh, it was a slow process uh, that wasn't very methodical in the beginning, but uh, became an addiction. And still is. So I when I am working on a book, it's basically all I do. And I get to be a bit of an isolationist, which is probably not so good.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, it's crazy. Um, so now, um, do, you, do you have like a website, social media? Where do you want readers and fans to kind of interact or follow you or, or come find sure. your books?
3: I have an author's website. It's Abigail, A-B-I-G-A-I-L, cutter.com. And um, they can go there to see a synopsis of the book and read a first chapter and see my very kind endorsements and um, and can order the book directly from there or from Amazon or bookshop.org or Barnes and Noble or basically any place that you can buy a book Um, But that's an easy way to do it is there's a link through there. Um, And then I have a I have a book, a Facebook page, which is just Abigail Cutter. Uh, But they can you can actually see much more about the book and the author's website. So I would suggest people go there first.
2: Yeah. Well, we'll have all that linked up, too. So people can find you with one click on the website and uh, come right to you. So um, I've. It's interesting. So you said you had another book. So are you writing um, more on the same area or are you going somewhere completely different?
3: No, it's this book is um, maybe 20 years later. It's during the Jim Crow era and it's set in Nelson County, Virginia, which is the county adjacent to Augusta County. So in even more mountainous area, remote area, the county still only has a population of about 15000 people. And uh, I have I have friends who have a piece of property with a quite an active ghost on it. And it's the same circumstance. It's a house where um, many of the belongings of the woman to whom it uh, initially belonged are still there. Um, and, and I'm not ultimately included in the, the ghost story in my book. I became interested in this woman. I went on Ancestry.com. She was um, she died at the age of 88 in the mid-70s. Uh, and so I went on Ancestry.com just to Check her out. And I realized that her mother was born into slavery, but she was raised um, because her mother passed as white. She was raised in an upper middle class, upper class white family, a Quaker family in Augusta County in a family where her grandfather started a school for black children right after the war when there were none. And so it's basically the story of uh, a girl who's an orphan raised by her grandmother um, who uh, in this Quaker family, and the Quakers were, you know, abolitionists, um, but there weren't many of them in Virginia, who then, because of uh, the tobacco crop, which they raised, uh, becomes valueless because of the crash of the tobacco market in the 1880s, ends up teaching in a black school down in the valley. And the story includes a murder and a lynching and, um, and ultimately this woman becoming a recluse. So it's led me to read a lot of books about the Jim Crow era, the most important being uh, The Strange Career of Jim Crow by C. Van Woodward, um, which, is, which Martin Luther King considered one of the best histories of, of the black population ever written.
1: i got to tell um, you, the, uh, my research is always in the uh, late 19th century with my research. Uh, and I, I use newspapers.com quite a bit, and it just surprises me. And I'm looking for uh, unsolved murders. Uh-huh. Uh, and um it surprised me how many lynchings there were that i see in the paper
3: uh, oh yes stunning. well but you know it's the 19th century was such a violent time so uh, one of my characters the uh dora my central character's father uh or grandfather i'm sorry grandfather uh is a conscientious what we'd call now a conscientious objector but in virginia if you didn't respond to the draft and you were white, there were lynchings of white people. Jeez. And as well as, you know, near fatal beatings. And of course it was nothing compared to the lynchings of black people. And in this particular case in my book, um, the story is based on a real lynching that occurred uh, when Several years later, so that, that's an inaccuracy, but um, so it was in, actually in 1904. It was a little black boy, nine years old, who hid a little white girl who was nine years old, who was then lynched. And the newspaper articles, when you speak about newspaper.com, the newspaper articles are fascinating because they they start out in nearby areas where the lynching occurred in Nelson, um, describing um, this the the fact that the sheriff stopped this little boy supposedly from some you know heinous act, which is I guess implies a rape, nine year old raping another nine year old, but um but it it ultimately ends up as a small AP associated press article in some place like Iowa that simply says rapist lynched in Virginia.
1: Oh yes.
3: With none of the details. And um and the, what would happen after a lynching occurred is often the victim would be taken to the yard or the house. The body would be taken to the yard or the house of the supposed uh, victim of this, of the person who had been lynched. And then the bodies of the people who were lynched were either burned or chopped up. There was a, I came across an account of a lynching in Delaware of a, a man who was accused without any jury, within any, any trial, uh, without any evidence, but a black man of having um, robbed a, a young white woman and killed her, and who then body was, he was taken to the yard of the family of the girl, and he was hung and then chopped up into small pieces and burned, so there was hardly anything of him left. So there was this incredible, incredible violence that ran through that time. And then, of course, yeah. we know that, that lynchings were entertainment, that people went to see lynchings, and took their children to see lynchings. So it, it's hard. It's hard to read that history.
1: Right. Right.
3: That's an understatement. Yeah.
1: yeah. I'm gonna, and I'm only I'm go, going to keep one of the stories that I have. That uh, they kept on picking on this uh, man. Uh, they were going to lunch him, but they did not. But uh, he was still ultimately found guilty years later for something that he did not do. Basically, but uh, yeah. just amazing.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, all of this history is painful to read.
1: Oh yeah, um, yeah, it's
2: true. But it
3: needs to be told. It certainly needs to be told. Right.
2: Yeah. Do you do yourself put in a, a subtext, or do you have some sort of a? I don't know what, maybe um, um, a meaning or something uh, underneath the storyline itself.
3: Often the result of um, powerful people wanting something of greed and that people who have less power are forced to lose their lives and their property to accomplish their means. And that was certainly true with the Civil War. Um, and that, that we on our own homeland certainly there are many people who have who fought in many wars other places, but civilians in this country who've never been soldiers haven't a clue how horrible it is and how it should be avoided that kind of violence at any at any cost. And and of course my last subtext is there are ghosts. <laughs> <So. Yeah. laughs> Both the metaphorical kind and, and, the, uh, and the real kind, you know. I think we pay too little, as, as a nation, pay too little attention to history um, as a general populace. And we don't realize how much it influences our day-to-day life and decisions. Um, but, but also, you know, I don't, I don't think we give enough credence to uh, what we can't see and what most of us can't see and can't hear that, that is around us. So that's, that's my subtext
2: they're they're nasty ghosts and they're good ghosts
3: yes right, <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> well that's that's pretty amazing um it's a very interesting story and and great so um now the book we're talking about of course is long shadows it's a novel and our guest is the author abigail cutter so thank you for coming on the show
3: oh i was it was a lot of fun and thank you so much for asking me to be on your show
0: Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website. In the Shapiro Report. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.